We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. be honest, I would put myself in the same category as D-Wade. Now Artest has jumped over the scorer's table. Artest is in the stands. This man was a bona fide scrub. He can't play. When I go to the writers to tell me who can guard in this league, I'll put a gun to my own head. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, March 31st. And not only by Alex Brutha today, uh, but by James Anderson as well. Uh, a valiant return to the Roadwire NBA podcast for James. Uh, one, I appreciate you guys hopping on today to do this. And two, this is something that we've never done before. It's something we've talked about doing for a very long time. Um, and I, I think the biggest impetus over the years has just been settling on an actual game to rewatch. Uh, but we picked 2009 Nuggets Mavericks round two, game three. Uh, to rewatch and analyze and just kind of take a trip down memory lane. You know, this is now almost 11 years ago um, and just kind of see how much things have changed in that time. And and uh, I, I think, James, you and I talked about which games to do. And we essentially settled on wanting to to go watch a vintage mellow game um, because you know his reputation has been derided so much 
over the last few years. I, I think we kind of wanted to be reminded of, of what peak mellow actually looked like. Yeah, I wanted Nuggets mellow specifically just because I I couldn't really remember uh, just his level of play that well from back then because I don't think I was watching a ton of those series. Like I, I watched a, you know, a ton of playoff basketball back then, but they they weren't really a team to be reckoned with for more than, than a few years while he was in Denver, and I just didn't really remember how well he was playing during that time period. So we had to pretty much take what was available on YouTube. Yeah, and this full game is available on YouTube. Um, highly recommend you go ahead and watch that. I will say the quality was not great. It was, I think it was in 360p. Uh, yeah. So it, it looked a lot better watching on a laptop. I For a while, I tried to to cast it to my TV, uh, which once you stretch it to to that width, did not look great. Um, so that was kind of the only downside is, you know, you kind of have to fight through the quality, but, um, you know, still good enough that you could you could obviously see what was going on. So, you know, you mentioned, James, that you weren't watching this series specifically super closely at the time. I certainly wasn't as well. Uh, what, what were you guys doing in May of 2009? I think, uh, I don't know, maybe that must have been I was either going to be a freshman in high school or it was like my summer uh after so i in may of 09 i must have i guess summer i must have been like i was probably just playing basketball outside with like in the neighborhood with everybody i knew at the time that that would have been my penultimate semester at college uh wrapping up uh (laughs) and then the um summer uh in between my i guess that would have been my fourth year of college and then i needed one extra semester uh, so four and a half years for me to get the, the graduation locked up. But, um, I, I was watching, you know, a decent amount of playoff basketball, uh, this season, but I was living with like a bunch of guys and like, not all of them were super into the NBA. So like, it's not mm-hmm. like I was watching every single series of every, you know, every single round. And I'm sure this one fell through the cracks. And I honestly didn't even remember, like I was watching this whole game uh, in preparation for this podcast and like the ending of the game took me completely by surprise because I didn't, I didn't do any, I tried to avoid everything Nick was emailing us about the game. Like I just, <laughs> I didn't even want to know. I didn't even know who won the game until the end of the game. And it was just uh, quite the finish. The Dallas Mavericks come home to the American Airlines Center in desperate need of a win. Down two to nothing in this Western Conference semifinal. Nene dominating the Mavericks in game one to the tune of 24 points. Carmelo Anthony absolutely taking over in the fourth quarter of game two with a game high 25. The Nuggets are on the road looking for a 3-0 stranglehold on the Dallas Mavericks. So to set the scene a little bit, the Nuggets are the two seed in 2009. They go 54 and 28. In the regular season, uh, they finished well behind, though, the Lakers, who went 65 and 17. Uh, of course, the Lakers would end up winning the title over Orlando in 2009. The Mavs are the sixth seed. They go 50 and 32 in the regular season. That only gets you uh, the six and what was even back then a very strong Western Conference. Nuggets beat the Hornets in round one. They win that series in five games, uh, four to one. They won game four against New Orleans, 121 to 63. <laughs> which is tied for the biggest playoff differential ever. 58 points they won that game by. Uh, can you guys name the only other playoff game decided by 50 or more points since then? It, it is a memorable one, I think, for us in particular. Was there one from, like, that Bucks pistons series or something? Bucks bowls 
in 2015, the game, oh, the game where Giannis oh, annihilated Dunleavy. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember, feel like that's been lost to history. I think so too. Went, that was such that was so early in Giannis's career. I went to a bar like specifically to watch that game there, and that that certainly uh, <laughs> stopped being fun pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, I want I, I look back at the box score for that game when I was researching, and I, I wish I had it in front of me now. But I, that game at some point it was like sixty-five to twenty. Like it was out of hand almost immediately. Like there was at no point in that game did you did you feel that the Bucks were in any way going to win. <laughs> no, not at all. Biggest playoff differential ever, by the way, if you're curious. 68 points. The Cavs over the Heat in, in 1991. Anyway, Mello in round one, averaged 24, 6, and 5, shot 46% from three. Somehow only took 13 threes over a five-game series. So <laughs> I think kind of looking big picture, like 2009 NBA, uh, to me this game, you know, it's, it's kind of like right on the cusp, I guess, of bridging the gap between like the older style of play, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands and in the newer style of play. But if you look at the numbers from 2009, like uh, the league is kind of split in some ways between like some teams are still playing the old style. Some teams are starting to get in uh, a little bit toward more modern, you know, more three point heavy, you know, fewer mid range jumpers. Um, but then you have a team like, you know, if you look at the three point attempts for that year, like Oklahoma city, which this was their first year uh, in the NBA after, after leaving Seattle, of course, they only attempted 11 three-pointers per game in 2008-2009, but at the top you had the Knicks who took 28 per game. So there's still this like weird divide where where half of the league is playing like it's 1998, and you know maybe a third of the league is starting to play a little bit more of a modern style. And I, I think that was kind of borne out when you watch the game. I was say that. I mean, that was the first thing that stood out to me, and it, and I'm sure the more of these that we do uh, from this era especially uh, that just stood out to me just immediately and just throughout the game. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even necessarily the lack of threes being taken. It was the quantity of shots being taken that in a game in 2020, like you would just get immediately pulled <laughs> if you took that shot. Um, like just like there, I, there was a, a three point or a, a jumper that Mello took uh, towards the end of the game it was like off the dribble and his feet were right in the middle of the three point line. Like he, he was mm-hmm. standing right on the middle of the line and there were like some just contested, uh, deep twos that were getting taken. There were like Eric Dampier post-ups where like plays are actually getting called for Eric Dampier yeah. post-ups and just like the amount of shots being taken where there was just no thought of like, well, let's, why are we taking this when we could just take a three that, that stood out to me almost more than the lack of three point attempts. Yeah, there was there was one play in particular, not to get too far into the game, but uh, I think J.R. Smith drove right side, kicked it to, I, I don't even remember who, so I think, oh, Nene on the left block, who went under the basket, four, four Mavericks players collapse on Nene under the basket, Nene kicks it out to, I think, Anthony Carter, whose heels are on the corner oh of the three-point line, and he takes, he catches the ball while taking one step in. And just shoots it, and it was like infuriating to see. I I have a full page of notes on Anthony Carter. We'll <laughs> we'll get to him at some point. Like I, that was he was the most alarming player to watch in this entire game. It was it was not Dirk, it was not Mello, it was not Billups. Like he, would, Anthony Carter does not exist in the modern NBA whatsoever. So to, to finish out the context for the Nuggets, this is the first time uh, since 1994 that the Nuggets have gotten past the first round of the playoffs. So they made the playoffs every single year from 2004 through 2013. And during that run, they flamed out in the first round every single time, except for this one. So this is a big deal. 
Um, I mean, obviously they didn't know that they would have four more first round exits after this, um, but having, having been uh, pushed out of the first round the previous five years, um, I think there's some belief and they hint at it on the telecast, but there's some belief that, you know, maybe this is the year that they break through. On the other hand, the Mavs, they beat the Spurs 4-1 in round one, um, but kind of a weird series. Tim Duncan's 32. He did not play well in that series. Um, I think maybe this is like the first of probably three or four times over the next decade that people maybe wondered if if that was it for the Spurs dynasty. Um, they had won the title two years earlier uh, over the Cavs, um, but the Mavs have been the better team in terms of the regular season. I mean, they're in right now in 2009, they're in the midst of an 11-year run uh, where they won at least 50-plus games in every season. However, since making the finals and losing to the Heat in 06, they lost in round one each of the previous two years. That prompted a coaching change. Avery Johnson had been fired the previous year. So this is Rick Carlisle's first year in Dallas. He was hired in May of 2008 uh, after leaving Indiana, which which is not something I realized um, kind of going in. Yeah, I know the, the Nuggets in particular like really exceeded expectations. I didn't realize how much so. Like I kind of remember this team, but I looked at the the preseason over under for this team was 40 and a half and they got 54 wins. Um, so they really, they really exceed expectations. Um, and like kind of looking back on their roster, I do remember it cause it was pretty good. I mean, they, you know, Billups played really well for them and Carmelo and Nene. both of these teams have a lot of like, um, good, like name recognition guys that you, you watch this game and it's like, there's like Jason Terry's in it, obviously Dirk, um, Gerald Green exists in this game, so it's it's wild. Mm-hmm. So the the Nuggets traded for Chauncey Billups very early in this season. So he played two games for Detroit and was traded uh, after those two games. So it was Billups and Antonio McDice for Allen Iverson, essentially. Uh, Billups goes on to finish sixth in MVP voting this season. He has one of his best best years of his entire career. He's 32. I don't really know why Detroit wanted Iverson. At that point, um, I mean, it, it, he, he, to be fair, he had played well the previous year for Denver. Um, but I, I mean, I think even in, we weren't we weren't watching the league maybe as closely back then as we do now. But I don't remember thinking like, wow, great trade for Detroit. Like if you if you can get this version of Allen Iverson, you absolutely have to have to get your hands on him. And I went back and read some articles about the trade and <laughs> Allen Iverson had been stripped of his captaincy in Denver in those two games, like in, in the two games before they <laughs> traded for him, he had been like so disruptive in the preseason and through the first week of the regular season that they stripped his captaincy and then Detroit immediately gave up Chauncey Billups for him. Yeah, that trade was nuts. I mean, that like at the time, I don't think I had any strong opinions about it. But I mean, when you look back at just how good the player uh, they got in Billups was compared to the player they were sending out in AI, um, I mean, Billups, to me, in this game, uh, I mean, and I mean, it, it's borne out pretty much any way you want to slice it. I mean, he was the second best player in the game behind Dirk. Um, and I mean, he, he's he's one of those guys where every, every time Billups got the ball and every time Jason Terry got the ball, I was just thinking, like, if this was today, those two guys would both just be letting it fire way more than they were in this oh, yeah. game or this season. A lot of shot faking and driving from Billups. Right. Like, the, the type like, of shots that open- now... Yeah, the Why type of shots that Nuggets used to assume. Out, shot fake, like drive in for like a contested two, yeah. So the Nuggets are up 2-0 going into this game. They win They win both of the first two at home. Dirk goes for 28 in game one, 35 in game two, uh, but really doesn't get much help outside of that. The Nuggets bench essentially wins game one. J.R. Smith, 15 points, six assists. The Birdman, six blocks. 
uh, in that game. And then in game two, it's the, the Nene game. 25 points. JR had 21 off the bench. Melo had 25. So games one and games two, you know, Billups had played well. But I think this was certainly his best game of the series. And it was Melo's best game uh, in terms of scoring, even though he wasn't all that efficient. Uh, in terms of the league overall, um, the MVP this season was LeBron. Danny Granger was the most improved player. First team, LeBron, Kobe, Dwight, Dirk, and Wade. Uh, both Melo and Billups were all NBA third teamers. Rashard Lewis led the league in made threes with 220. Uh, Ten players took at least 400 threes uh, last season, the last full completed season that we have, 2018-19. 43 players took at least 400 threes. So that, that's kind of another snapshot of, of where the league at, was at uh, style-wise at the time. Oh, I mean, in those first two games... I think Mello and Nene in the first two games combined for 97 points, uh, which is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, the the style of play, which we'll I guess we'll get into more, where it feels like it feels like the, every you know the goal of every possession was to get a post up or a mid range jumper. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you you mentioned, like you know there were some guys shooting threes, but it felt like everyone who was out there like actually like kind of gunning for threes teams were like bringing them off the bench as like, Oh, look at these crazy guys who shoot threes, like mercenaries. Like, Oh, we're going to bring J.R. Smith in. He'll chuck up yeah. some threes. It's going to be wild. Jason Terry. Oh man. What, what if he gets open from three? Like it was like this weird, it was still kind of a, um, can't think of the right word for it. It was still kind of like this unique, weird thing that, that teams kind were of a, kind of a novelty well, in some ways. Yeah. Right? Novelty. Hey. That's the word. My first thought, like when the, um, you know, you saw the two starting lineups and like, it was like 30 seconds into the game or whatever. I was just like, both of these teams would be ridiculously easy to defend in a playoff series. If you were using 2020 principles, right? Like you would just, you wouldn't let Dirk get any open looks. You wouldn't get mellow, let mellow or Billups get any open looks. And yeah, I mean, you, you don't want Jason Kidd taking open looks either, but they were really both starting like three non-shooters and that the idea of doing that today is just completely insane. I was just saying, well, yeah, watching this game makes me feel like the defenses in this era were like worse than they are now by like a, like a significant margin. Like the amount of times where the, you know, someone had the ball in the block and like someone came over to double team for seemingly no reason, or there are four defenders standing in the lane and somehow gets a, someone somehow still gets a layup or someone cuts to the basket and no one cuts them off. Like it was, it was wild. Like I didn't understand how teams were, I don't understand what the defenses were doing at all in this game. Like I understand it's like, it's, yeah, it's within the context of what the offenses are doing, but like, it's, it's insane to think that like teams couldn't get completely shut down in this era. The, the defense at the rim, like rim protection was basically just foul them hard. That was it. You know, like, and, and half of those fouls were ones that would now be reviewed for flagrant ones. And this isn't that long ago. I mean, it's not like you're watching those, you know, bad boy Pistons mixtapes where they're just like clotheslining guys. But I mean, there were a few where like guys are not going for the ball whatsoever, you know, and there, I think they're late in the third quarter with like two minutes left in the third. There were six guys in the game that had at least four fouls. And that's exactly how the game felt, you know, like watching. This is a long two plus hour game, even with all the commercials cut out, because there were what, 80, 88 combined free throws, I think, or 89 combined free throws. Like both teams were at the line all the time. And part of that is, you know, just not settling for threes. Um, you know, I guess attacking the basket more than we see now. And, and like you said before, James, like not only are, is each team starting three non-shooters, but at no point in the game at all, does any team have more than 
three shooters on the court. I think midway through the fourth, um, Doris Burke makes a reference to to both teams going quote unquote small. It's right after Birdman fouls out. And going small means you have Brandon Bass still on the court at center for the Mavs, and you still have Kenyon Martin on the court for for the Nuggets. So even like going small and you know playing back then, you know the equivalent of going five out was having like maybe three three and a half guys who could shoot a three. Yeah, it's it's really like I made a list of the amount of guys in this game that I thought could play minutes in a round two playoff game in 2020, and I couldn't come up with 10 guys. I came up with nine guys um, just where for whatever reason they wouldn't be forced off the court. And maybe it's, I don't think it's that bad. Like now I think any, any round two series, especially in the Western conference, I would think you'd be able to find 12 guys. If you combine the two rosters where it's like, yeah, we feel comfortable having this guy out there in a playoff series. Uh, but there's just a bunch of guys in this game. Like Brandon Bass actually scores a decent amount of points in this game, but um, like, I mean, Brandon Bass, I don't think could really play for, uh, I mean, unless he was somehow able to maybe stretch the way that like PJ Tucker stretches, but um, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was really crazy just seeing some of the guys that are getting legitimate minutes in this game that just would not sniff the court at all. If, if they were on a roster in 2020, I had written my, in my notes that Brandon Brass is just an athletic freak. Like he is a marvel <laughs> in this game, and like him and Nene are the two guys who really stand out athletically, which sounds ridiculous to say. Like I, when I think Brandon Bass, I think you know like late career Celtics Brandon Bass, and like he was kind of a different player uh, for this Dallas team. And then like you said, he doesn't shoot threes, but I, I went and looked at his his college stats. He was obviously a great player for two years at LSU. His sophomore year at LSU, he he hit almost 50% of his threes. He's taking about one a game. And he gets to the NBA and, you know, over the course of like 700 plus NBA games, he only took 58 threes in his entire career. So this is a guy that like at the college level was a very good, albeit on a reduced volume, three point shooter and just never got the opportunity whatsoever in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, just completely discouraged from taking threes at all, even if they were decent in college, I think. Also, this season, uh, he only took 38 attempts, but Kenyon Martin shot 37% from three this season. And I think he actually hit a corner three in this game. If it wasn't a three, it was just inside the line. I think it was line. a long two, yeah. And it, it looked pretty pure, and that's what made me go look that up. And, yeah, I mean, he hit his threes this season. And I, I, I to me, I think Kenyon Martin, at least in this stage of his career, could have still played in today's game as your – just kind of a modern five where maybe he can stretch to the corner, but he was still so good defensively and you could still switch him defensively that I think even if he wasn't shooting threes at a high clip, he could have still played today. But like, I don't, I don't think Nene could have played in a second round playoff series just because I, I mean, or he, he's kind of like that in his canter type of big where it's like, he's not, He's not really protecting the rim, and he's not stretching the floor. So, can you really have him out there in a, in a second round series? Yeah, Nene weirdly is just kind of like a pure scorer in this game, and like there, it, like with under two minutes left in the game, and it's you know within one possession basically for most of the fourth quarter. You know, Billups is holding the ball up top. Melo's trying to run off screens, and Nene is just planted in the middle of the paint, trying to post up every single possession. Like he's he's really not offering anything else other than dump it to me, and I'm probably just going to take a shot like he's not a great passer by any means 
Um, it was just it, very overall just watching this game. Like the lane is constantly cluttered. Yeah, and I uh, it was one of those like you're watching this game and it makes you wonder like the, you know these teams are both of these teams are like running offenses with guys coming off screens and you know they're running pick and rolls and stuff like that. But no one ever gets an open shot. Like what? Like what are they running an offense for? Like they get the same. They get the same look every time. They run ten seconds of offense to get someone to post up on the mid block every single time. And it's like, why are you even doing this? And at some point in the game, Jason Kidd just starts posting up, which I thought eventually yeah. was the Mavericks' best offense because you stopped turning the ball over and he was doing really well. But I don't even know why these teams bothered like running off ball screens. Like no one ever got open. There were like ten open shots in this entire game. I think Dirk had like four of them. Like, like somehow the best player in the game had like half the open shots. At least from from right. Yeah, no, that is a good note. And the point guards posting up each other was a major theme in this game. It was more Jason Kidd. There was one point in the fourth quarter where where Doris Burke remarks that there was three straight possessions that Jason Kidd backed down Chauncey Billups, and Billups was doing it on the other end throughout the entire game. Which like are there are there any point guards in the league right now who? routinely will just back someone down 25 feet out and just get all the way to the basket like i mean you can count like lebron or, or even Doncic to some degree when they're handling the ball but not like true point guards right and not and not like true po- like what like what you're talking about like lebron will get the ball in the post um but it's usually not like a eight nine second like back down, yeah you know like phillips was taking yeah. entire possessions yeah, I know, like, Marcus Smart, they post him up sometimes, but, like, I don't know, the, the difference between that and literally, like, you get to the three-point line as a point guard, and then you turn your back and just start working in, right. like, you, it's, it's, <laughs> you never, you almost never see that anymore. Yeah, that's a remnant of the, the late 90s style, like, that just, like, that image to be, Mark, just reminds Mark me Jackson of Mark Jackson. Would do that. Yes. Like, Mark Jackson <laughs> would do that from, like, a, he'd get across half court and, like, right. go into his post-up, you know? <laughs> yeah yeah and again so it, this game it just felt between eras for me like i think i expected it to maybe be a little more bogged down than it was i mean the, the score ends up in the hundreds and you know, at this point there are still a lot of playoff games that were ending in like the 70s and 80s and occasionally even the 60s so like for the time this was a relatively high scoring game but i think most of that was you know as we've been saying just like the extreme free throws and then the the strong free throw shooting by both these teams so dallas like i said took 49 free throws uh, a team has only taken uh, at least 49 free throws in a playoff game six times since then, and it hasn't happened since 2015. So that that's one of those trends that just might not happen again based on how teams play. Like it, in the modern NBA, it's extremely hard to get to 49 free throw attempts um, with with the volume of of three point shots that are being put up. I just wanted to quickly ask with the when you when you brought up the fouls, um, did you guys think this game looked? at all from an officiating standpoint or just bad i i don't or go ahead alex i don't know how you're supposed to officiate this era like i don't like it it was weird because i i mean i thought it was fine i guess i didn't like notice the officiating that much Hmm. um so that maybe that's good but yeah i guess what i mean everyone is just like it seems like hacking each other on purpose and just like shoving each other around and i don't know what like you're really supposed to do as an official but, um, you know, because today, you know, people get bumped and they call fouls all the time. But you, if you if you played it like that, there would have been 70 free throws in this game for both teams. Yeah, I think that that I think that's that's fair. I mean, it definitely was like you said, there was just a lot of contact uh, and it was 
intentional in many cases. So yeah, I think that that's fair. Yeah, I felt the same way. I didn't notice the refereeing. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of complaining. Like when when Birdman fouled out, you know, he stops over to the bench and couldn't believe it. But if you watch the play, like he very clearly wraps up. I think it was Brandon Bass just wraps him up and like shoves him when the ball's in the air on a rebound. Like you're going to get that call every single time. So I I didn't really find it unfair. Like, like Alex said, I think it was a lot of like guys just hacking, you know, somebody's going like Nene looks like he has an open layup. Somebody just kind of rakes him across the forearm and that's going to be a foul. Like I I don't remember there being anything controversial and of course until the end. And and we'll get to that. Support for this podcast comes from wild Turkey, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Let's tune into their one-on-one with Jamal. A real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. I want to talk about Josh Howard. Not somebody I have thought about in any way probably since 2009. He, he ends up being traded to Washington uh, the following season. I, I guess I didn't really realize how good he was for a very short period. I mean, he was he was a mid-first-round pick out of Wake, Wake Forest uh, in the mid-2000s, not, not like a huge prospect by any means. You know, a little bit of a slow start to his career, but by, by year four, which is 06, 07, he makes an all-star team. He averages 19 and seven, two assists over a steal a game, Shoots 39% from three on on three and a half attempts a game, which for that time was a pretty decent volume. Um, and then he has an even better year. The next year doesn't make the all-star team. Still good this season. Um, but as they touch on right away at the start of the game, he comes in with both ankles are apparently injured. And like it, it's the way that they made it sound, like it, it seems like he was iffy to even play. Ends up playing a ton of minutes on this game or in this game. And and they mentioned on the telecast that he's he's already decided and announced that he's going to get surgery on one of the ankles after the playoff. So he's he's playing through what what appears to be at least a, a pretty severe ankle injury. Yeah, that was one of the first notes I made too. Is just that I, I wrote that he had untapped Pascal Siakam type of potential, where he was just um, he would have fit in so well, like he would have been so highly coveted in today's game and. Um, I mean, I think there were some, you know, some minor like off court stuff, uh, with him, but yeah, I think it was mostly injuries. I mean, he, he sort of reminds me a little bit of like Lamar Odom and just, yeah, like if you put, uh, like if you put like a Pascal Siakam level, like drive and work ethic, uh, into him, I mean, he really had all the tools and, uh, was doing pretty crazy athletic stuff in this game, given the fact that he was playing, banged up it's it's really a shame that his career kind of uh you know had like a four or five year run there where he was really really good and then he just completely fizzled out this is this is kind of the era i think of um not only old school sweatbands still but surprising one-time all-stars um like you look back at some of the like most of the if you look back on like you know people are are you know, articles would be written of like, these are the surprising all-stars in NBA history. They're all from like 05 to like 2000, like 11 um, guys like Josh Howard. And it wasn't necessarily a surprise that they were all-stars at the time. I mean, sometimes it is, but these guys had like one year peaks and then they completely fizzle out something like, like Josh Howard did. Kenyon Martin was actually an all-star one year. Um, 
guys Mo like Williams that, and I, Devin I like Harris was... were both all stars this year. Right. I think. Yeah. That's I think what that's, I mean. that's such a to me. That's just a sign that the league was not at a super great spot from a talent standpoint. Like, and I, I think that this just watching this game um, kind of bears that out. You know, like I think if you're like to you know, I think when everyone's healthy, I think the the league's in a really good spot right now. Um, just from a quantity of talent standpoint, but when you only have like, you know, maybe this year there were only like eight to ten, just like no doubt all star level players in the league, and so everyone else is kind of battling for a bunch of spots. To me, that's that's kind of my takeaway from it. Is there just there wasn't that sort of forty, fifty deep in terms of really good players in the league at this point. I have a couple more notes on on the all star game and and the season. Uh, overall, that kind of relates to this. And then I have a, a couple Josh Howard points as well. So Kobe and Shaq were co-All-Star MVPs in this season. Shaq, I think, was was a member of the Suns at the time and had like 16 points in 10 minutes or something in the All-Star game. Uh, this was also the, I believe, the first year that the NBA did the horse competition, which was won by <laughs> Kevin Durant, of course. Uh, there were three people who competed in the horse competition. It was Kevin Durant, OJ Mayo, and Joe Johnson. <laughs> I remember watching that. I I was really excited for that. <laughs> I remember watching it as well and being like gravely disappointed by I, how it turned out. Yeah. Out. Yeah, it's such I hoped. Uh Nate Robinson won the dunk contest this year. Daquan Cook, uh, of course, won the three point shootout. Um and I also I looked up some of the end of year stats. Charlie Villanueva, speaking about um the lack of talent in this era, Charlie Villanueva was ninth in usage rate this season. Troy Murphy was second in rebounds per game. Wow. <laughs> anyway, getting back to to Josh Howard. So you mentioned that he had some some minor off the court issues, and in the grand scheme of off court issues, these are fairly minor. Um, but I, I think it was kind of a accumulation of many things that ended up leading to him ultimately being traded. Uh, he had that the previous summer. He had that incident. I, I believe he was at a celebrity flag football game, and he had some very derogatory comments about the national anthem or the American flag. Shortly after that, he was arrested for going 94 miles an hour in a 55 zone. Uh, he was said he was drag racing his friend. Uh, and then the previous season. Oh, so the honesty. Yeah, right. He was just drag racing, man. So in 2008, the previous postseason, he was criticized for doing a radio interview during the series and saying that he occasionally smoked weed, which in 2009, I think, was a much bigger deal. Uh, and then later in the same series, he this is this is directly quoting from an article he, quote, angered Coach Avery Johnson by handing out flyers for his upcoming birthday bash after a Game 4 loss to the Hornets. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, just loves to party, man. Yeah, like so I said, very, in the, very in the locker room, stuff. <laughs> he's handing out flyers for his birthday party in the locker room directly after a loss. Well, just, I mean, talk about a sign of the times that you would be handing out, like, paper right. flyers for a party. Yeah, he was would, he was kind of burned by the paper like, trail. Like here's a here's a link to this thing I'm going to later. It's yeah. like here's a here's a piece of paper with this uh, address on it. Like I, I imagine Avery Avery Johnson just found one that was laying around in the locker room. It's something that a modern right. player would never have to worry about. Quick trivia: Can you name the three teams that he played for after Dallas? He was out of the league by 32. Uh, you said the Wizards, right? Was that yep. one of them? So he spent he spent the 2009. 10 season or part of it with Washington and then 2010 11. Uh, and then he played for two more teams the next two years. I have no memory of either of these. 
Oh, man. I mean, this is completely random guessing for me. I mean, Charlotte? Actually, well, they would have been... That would have been the Bobcats, right? Or wait, wait, did the Bobcats exist then? When did the Bobcats come into the league? They were they were in the league well before that. They came in... I mean, they came in in, like, the mid-2000s. Okay, I thought so. Uh, oh, yeah, 05. Um, yeah, dude, I don't know. I, I, I'm just going to be guessing random teams. He played for Utah and Minnesota. Again, no memory of, of either of those things happening whatsoever. Uh, I looked up his numbers, just ran it through the you know basketball reference where you can search by statistics just to kind of see which current day players he most closely resembled. And the, the three that kept coming up were like young Kawhi, Kelly Oubre, and like the last two seasons of Jalen Brown. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, uh, I, I guess, of those, I think, um, Uber kind of rings the most true. I mean, part of the reason why I, I just, I think Dallas, you know, they got rid of him in part because of the injury issues, but um, he just, he seemed like he had all the tools to be like a transcendent two way wing on a title team, except he just didn't seem to have, um, like, he was making too many stupid plays. Uh, the, you know, to to be a guy that's going to be—I mean, he basically had to be their third best player or second best player, um, depending on how well Jason Kidd was going. Uh, I just, you know, there were mental errors that he was making that you don't see someone like Andre Iguodala or even like Sean Marion or yeah, like Kawhi Siakam, like those types of guys. I mean, he had that type of talent, but um, I think that they probably had sort of seen enough of him being such a high profile guy for them uh, at that stage when they wanted to take the next step. What else do you guys have from the game itself? Just straight observations. Well, do we, do we touch on uh, Dirk's fiance yet? No, we have not. And this is, this is something that I think we were reminded of when researching. Um, yeah. I think most people are aware that, you know, around this time Dirk was more basically just the victim of um, extortion. You know, he had, he had been dating a girl who, you know, the more you dig into it, he said they had met online and talked for a long time and eventually developed a relationship. And it turned out that she had, like, a ton of prior, uh, like, warrants and crimes ranging from, like, petty crime to identity theft and all this. And more or less, she ended up trying to extort Dirk. And all this came to a head, like, three days before this game. I think I, they, they mentioned on the telecast that she was arrested on Wednesday, and this game takes place on Saturday. Yeah, apparently people were like concerned about her, so he hired a private investigator, and that that ended up leading the charge. And I can't remember if I read this or if they said in the broadcast that she had as many as fifteen different aliases. Like, like you mentioned, she was just like actually a con artist. From the actual game, I guess on the first possession of the game or the Mavericks' first possession, like we got to mention the sign of the era. Jason Kidd holding the ball was the only person uh, outside of the three-point line. They basically ran a play that started with two guys on the block and two guys on the free throw line and went from there, um, which was, I, I don't know, man. It's, you know, you know, like looking back, everybody talks about how many mid-range jumpers there were and post-ups, but it, it, it doesn't really sink in until you actually watch a full 48 minutes of it um, where they're, the, you know, the, the goal of every possession is to seemingly get a 16-foot contested jumper. Um, and I, I don't even understand how people, some people like glorify the era. This was like, this made me dislike it even more. 
it it really does it it so it's um yeah i think we were just really sort of blessed that the game naturally evolved the way it did to kind of get us out of this era because uh just the amount of fouls like i mean it's just really bad to watch when you're just seeing just bad percentage shot after bad percentage shot from inside the arc get taken uh but then it just is compounded by that type of play just resulting in so many more fouls uh, which slows the game down, which would have in today's game led to a bunch of extra replays. Um, like just the the fact that like taking a three pointer was sort of like, oh, if the clock's winding down and we, we really can't get a good look, then sure, we'll take a three pointer. Um, but really that like the idea of taking an open three, unless you were basically Dirk or maybe even Carmelo, but Carmelo wasn't even really looking to take open threes. Um, it just wasn't a shot that anyone was considering really taking. And it's just, this is going to drive me nuts. If, if we do uh, another one of these about the Suns teams I love from this same era, it's going to drive me even more nuts there because there's just going to be really good three-point shooters not taking threes, I'm sure, <laughs> in certain cases. And, and for the most part, that'll be Steve Nash. But um, just every time... I just kept thinking like Chauncey Billups taking a three here is by far the best thing they could do on this possession. And it was just option 12, probably, you know, um, just really, really yeah, crazy they, stuff. They like weren't running any plays to get open threes. And now half, you know, half of NBA offenses basically start with, okay, let's try to get an open three and then we'll figure out an offense after that. And like, I was watching this and at some point I was just thinking like, I would have, I don't even, I mean, I, I don't know how much like actual pickup basketball I was playing during this like era. Like I would have hated playing basketball. Like, and I guess you can still like today get in some pickup games down at the gym or whatever, where nobody can really shoot threes and it's just kind of like this and it's like horrible. And I, I'm like you mentioned, I'm glad that somehow we ended up uh, in this more modern style. Yeah, I mean, not that this is a perfect comparison by any means, but even like playing, you know, organized high school basketball at this time, like this was this was my would have been the end of my junior year in high school. Like our, our coach very much, you know, wanted to play this style. And I think most teams did. Like Steph Curry was not, you know, at that point he was still, I think maybe wasn't even in the league yet, or maybe maybe he was going to be a rookie the following year. Like I, I think he deserves a lot of credit, obviously, for kind of making that style more acceptable but it honestly it wasn't even for another five or six years where it really kind of reached the point that that it started to be accepted league-wide but it was just not acceptable really at any level of basketball to be taking that many threes or the the type of threes that we see in today's nba and i the number one guy i have in my section of things that did not age well anthony carter i think we got to talk about him he shot 23 23 <laughs> well, from three that season i when you said that there's no such thing as like Anthony Carter in the league today, like my first thought was Shelvin Mack, uh, but I actually have no idea <laughs> he's what not he's league. doing. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, so he's not in the league. I mean, I I think uh, the the two or the the three coaches really, where I think that they're sort of they were just thinking so far ahead of everyone else with this, were Don Nelson, uh, Mike D'Antoni, but then from like right in this exact era. Uh, Stan Van Gundy with the magic. Um, like really it's, those are the only three coaches that I can think of that were really trying to push this in the direction it needed to go. 
And with Stan Van Gundy, I think his the only reason he was doing it was personnel. Like, it was just kind of an obvious way to build around Dwight Howard. But uh, Don Nelson and Mike D'Antoni for, like, years kind of wanted to do this, and they just couldn't really push it as far as they needed to push it uh, or, or maybe didn't have the right personnel in Don Nelson's case to really push it in this direction. But uh, for the most part, I mean, I think all coaches can get a huge fail from this era in terms of their offensive game planning because – it's not like we were watching beautiful offense in this game. Like, like we've been saying, it's, it, this was just pretty ugly offense for the most part. And most coaches just weren't even considering the idea of, of changing things up like this. Both these teams were top seven in the league in offense that season too. So these, these are like very good offensive teams. They were top 10 in offense and defense. Um, I mean, it's not like we picked the, you know, the two worst offenses in the league to watch. Like this was, these teams, you know, were considered good offense. I mean, I, I kind of wish we would have picked like a Kings Hawks game or something to see what that would look like. I'm oh my we... god! <laughs> I think Go we should ahead. hit on the Birdman. Yeah, I, I put him under my uh, announcing crew slash presentation section because it was very clear that in whatever like pre-show meeting that they had, like they were going to make Birdman a major focus, and like Doris Burke and, and Dan Schulman who were on the call, which. Now, this is not a complaint, but this kind of felt like a college game because since then, Dan Schulman has become so ingrained in the college game that it, it is kind of weird to hear him on the call of a major NBA game. Um, but from the moment that Birdman checks in in the first quarter, like they are gushing over him, you know, and he's he's, I think, two years removed from missing an entire year with all the substance abuse is- issues. Um, so at this point, you know, he's still like a really good feel good story. But again, it was it was clear that he was going to be a main focus. They even did a Birdman Rodman montage uh, just to kind of show how similar <laughs> they are as players. Um, but I, I thought it was it was interesting. Has there ever been a player, especially of his caliber, who announcers refer to almost exclusively by the nickname? Like you barely ever hear them say Anderson. It's always the Birdman or Birdman. Like so many NBA players have nicknames, but it's not like you're watching a Celtics game from this era and they're just constantly saying there's the truth. You know, like they still say the guy's name. Like Birdman is just Birdman, even in 2009. Yeah, that's, that's a really good observation. I, I, uh, I mean, I guess magic counts as his nickname. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I've always thought it's, interested like the players that just get the first name treatment but yeah the, that's taking it a step further just getting the the nickname treatment uh i didn't i listened with the sound off so i didn't i didn't hear any of the broadcast other than uh the, the u2 opening credits I, I i made a note of i made a note of that and then hit mute on my computer uh but Ooh. i i do have a note uh just birdman versus the rats uh it seemed yep. to be kind of a ongoing and, and versus the Mavs crowd <laughs> yeah it just I, what did he have like six fouls in like 14 minutes or something like that he fouled out in 10 minutes and 42 seconds of play <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, that that honestly seems kind of high but yeah you met, i had the u2 thing as well that was a brutal brutal intro um, that fe- it featured multiple, you know, they're showing like highlights of stars around the league, you know, so it'll cut to Kobe dunking and then cut to Trace McGrady taking a jumper. And then it would cut to like a ref making a call. Like they, they spliced <laughs> in like ref highlights into this like pump up, you know, minute long, uh, kind of intro for, for the ESPN telecast. But you have to keep in mind, we're still at this point, I think what, three or four years away from the timber intro that kind of changed everything. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just such a 
uh, weird, like clearly they're trying to appeal to an older audience. Uh, I mean, they also, I, you guys might not even know think of this as weird, but like, I thought it was weird that they had a promo for not only Sunday night baseball in presumably whatever May this was, uh, but also Monday night baseball. And then they had like, like they missed like half of a play, like promoing this upcoming Sunday night baseball game in May. And just the, the idea of that happening on an NBA playoff broadcast today is just laughable that they would talk about anything baseball related in during the NBA playoffs. But um, that plus the U2 uh, choice certainly suggests to me that the people running the show are probably in their 50s and they yes. are trying to appeal to a, a viewer in their 50s as well. Uh, well, I looked it up. The number one song, the number one hip hop song in the country at this time was Turn My Swag On by Soldier Boy. So like their options were, were a little bit limited, I think, in terms of what they could use. Um, my other My other notes from the telecast were, one, there is also a promo for Taken, the movie uh, in the second quarter that they like they weirdly integrated with like NBA jargon. It was like a taken slash NBA promo uh, that was not good at all and was just more confusing than anything. Uh, and they also they also cut in for a Taco Bell studio update at one point, uh, which was extremely 2009. The first item that they hit on was Yao Ming going for an MRI on his foot. And the second was Ron Artest getting a flagrant two reduced to a flagrant one. And then they showed the play. And our test like levels Pau Gasol, like clearly a flagrant yeah, yeah. two. I have yeah, no idea how yeah. that got reduced. That play today would have been like easy flagrant two and maybe like a multi-game suspension. <laughs> yes, especially in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah. I actually rewinded. I rewound that when they said it was reduced. I was like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> I went back and I was like, are we, are we sure? Yeah, that was that was unbelievable. Like I. I mean that that one would easily be an ejection, and I, I think you're right, James. Like I think that's that's like a one game suspension now, at least. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it I I kind of um, yeah. I mean, on on the one hand, I I think we've definitely improved in terms of the amount of just weird, unnecessary in game fouling. Like, just it's it's a little less physical, which I think is for the most part better. I mean, you don't. You don't want just hard foul after hard foul in the post, but um, I, I do kind of like we never see those types of fouls anymore. I mean, it, it kind of uh, sort of sad in, in a way uh, that that just that level of physical play has just completely been uh, legislated out of the game. Yeah, I think it makes it just all the more shocking. You know, once or twice a year you get something like that, and now it's just met with you know so much pearl clutching that back then. I mean, you can even tell it's not like. Like Doris Burke and Dan Shulman are just like acting like it was just a totally normal play, you know. Like they're they're cutting into the game to show this like pretty gruesome foul highlight, and they they just have no comment on it whatsoever. Um, I think we need to talk about J.R. Smith a little bit. He's he's part of the reason that I wanted to do this game. You know, J.R. is obviously yeah. You know, I, I think now it's been so long, you know, and he's kind of had this second life with the Knicks and maybe a third life even with the Cavs, and obviously winning the title that like. Early J.R. Smith, in terms of how he was viewed as a prospect versus late career J.R. Smith, is so much different. And they don't gush about him too much on the telecast. But you can tell there's still this air of, like, this guy's super young. And, you know, they had, they, I think the year before, or part of the reason that they had traded Allen Iverson, uh, there was a quote that I saw that, that basically they felt like, you know, he was, 
he was ahead of J.R. Smith and they needed to make more time for, for J.R. Smith to get more shots. And, you know, they're willing to trade away a future Hall of Famer for that. And he didn't have a great game. He didn't hit any threes. Um, it made, made a couple he plays hit, throughout the game. He hit one three. Did he? I, I oh, swear yeah, you're right. You're right. No, you're right. One for four. Yep. Um, but got to the line a few times. I, I thought he was good. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to see him at that age. And, you know, I remember like he was one of my favorite players as a kid. You know, he had he had been in the dunk contest as a member of the Hornets a couple years earlier. And I mean, in this series, he's five years in, but he's still only 23 years old. Yeah, he was he was really good this year. Um, he was 15 points on like 12 shots. He's 40% from three on five and a half attempts a game, which, um, I didn't check. That must be like pretty high in the, yeah, he made the, he made the fifth most threes in the NBA that year. Uh, 08, 09, he made 180. So, um, he was good too. And yeah, you can see why, you know, they thought he was going to be really good. Um, and he ended up. You know, he really only had one like high volume year of his career, but that was like his like second year in New York when he scored 18 points a game, but his efficiency kind of went down. And but yeah, the way he's talked about then compared to the way he's talked about over the past five years is insanely different. He was second in six man of the year voting this season behind Jason Terry. There, I lied. I uh, I did turn the volume on a couple times uh, before quickly turning it back off, and I do remember. Uh, them relaying a quote from George Carl that he said if uh, Carmelo and J.R. Smith combined for 10 assists in this game, he'd feel pretty good. And <laughs> I thought, I thought that was uh, an interesting read yeah. on your personnel to think that getting 10 <laughs> assists out of Carmelo and J.R. in this game was even a possibility. Yeah. Let alone I would feel, I would feel great about that. I'd feel great too, yeah. Um, I, I thought it right when J.J. Barea, a young J.J. Barea, who looks basically exactly the same, uh, he checks in with uh, a little under one and a half minutes left in the first, and J.R. immediately walks over to him and starts talking. And the, the quote from Doris Burke is, and there's J.R. Smith right away woofing it up with J.J. Barea. <laughs> <laughs> so woofing, I don't know, is that a 2009 term? But yeah, J.R. And, and Barea were immediately getting into it before Barea had even like played a second officially. Can, can you relay, um, just talking about JR got me thinking about this. Can you relay the OJ Mayo Mello story um, from, from around this around yes. this era? Yeah, so I, I, I just kind of did some some recon on, like, overall this season. I, I read a bunch of just kind of, like, season recap type of articles and whatnot that came out around that time. And one of them mentioned, this is something that actually happened um, the previous year. So it was the, the 2007, 2008 season. So OJ Mayo at this point is a freshman at USC, you know, of course, widely expected to be a top five pick. He ends up going, I think third to, to Memphis, but at the time he's still in school and uh, I'd forgotten, I, I vaguely remember this at the time, but Mello had, had fallen under some heat for giving OJ Mayo free courtside tickets to a Nuggets at Lakers game. And I, I found an article that just kind of delved into the whole situation. And it turned out that Mello had met OJ Mayo, who again is a freshman in college at this point, had met him at a party in Los Angeles. And uh, this is coming from OJ Mayo. This is a quote from him. I was talking to him like, man, you're out pretty late. You've got a game tomorrow against Kobe, Mayo said. Mello said, nah, it'll be all right. And then he asked, you want to come to the game? And I was like, sure. So that was the full <laughs> breakdown of how this went. Mello, Mello ended up getting in trouble for like possible 
you know, improper benefits to a, to a player. I think that was probably the least of USC's concerns when it came to OJ Mayo receiving improper benefits, getting tickets from Carmelo right. Anthony. Um, but yeah, just a fantastic quote from OJ Mayo, who, I mean, if you have a 19 year old, our college freshman telling you like, Hey, maybe you shouldn't be out this late. And then to just totally be like, no, nah, it's good, man. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> you think you're out a little late? Nah, nah, this will this will be fine. <laughs> I looked it up. They ended up losing that game to the Lakers by 17 points, and Melo had, <laughs> Melo had 13 points. <laughs> That's incredible. We need to talk about Antoine Wright, right? I'll James. I'll cede the floor to you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, when the lineups came out, um, I honestly like the name. Name the name like rung a bell sort of but not to the point where i could tell you where he went to school like what other teams he played for um really anything about his game at all <laughs> and that's just like i i followed the league pretty closely back then uh so just to not even remember a player in one of these starting lineups to me was was pretty noteworthy but um honestly probably not one of the three or four worst guys to get tick in this game. So, uh, you know, I just <laughs> thought it was interesting that there was a player that I had honestly, I knew nothing about really that was starting in this game. Yeah. I felt the exact same way. Um, he, I, I'm looking at his draft right now. So he was the 15th pick in 2005. That was the Bogut Chris Paul draft. And I'm sorting right now by, by player value by Vorp. And he is the third worst player in the class. So he is 53rd out of 55 in VORP. Negative 2.4 for the career. <laughs> he had he, good size. He looked he like did. a 3 and D guy. He, he looked never like, really he looked shot like, he, like a 3 and D guy. <laughs> yeah, he was a, just an and D guy. He he actually came over from New Jersey in as the uh, as part of the Jason Kidd trade, which is something oh. we haven't addressed. I mean, that was that was a trade that Dallas made the previous season, traded two firsts and five players, none of none of whom were overly relevant for Kidd, Antoine Wright, and Malik Allen. And the previous season, Jason Kidd had averaged 10 points, 10 assists, and 7 rebounds. I I don't think you see these kind of trades anymore. You know, we talked about the Iverson one. This one's kind yeah. of similar. Like, no one's given up two first-round picks for 33-year-old Jason Kidd. <laughs> I mean, do we, do we even know that the Mavs didn't win that trade, though? Like, who were those first-round picks? That's that's actually a fair question. Um, neither of these teams, by the way, drafted well at all. Oh, it was uh, sorry, Ryan Anderson and Jordan Crawford were later selected. <laughs> okay, fair. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's just um, it just doesn't seem a lot. I mean, this this was probably would you say slightly post prime kid, or do you think he was still smack dab in the middle of his prime? I think definitely post prime. I think he fell off. Um, he fell off pretty hard, I think, kind of starting this season. Um, so he was, I mean, he was still, he was still an all-star the previous year and he was an all-star the next year. But, uh, at the time of the trade, he was actually 34, not 33. So this season we're watching him, he's 35 and he, for the season averaged nine points on 41% shooting. I mean, I I think the, the caveat is that at this point in his career, he had become such a good spot up three point shooter you know, that that was not something he had, he had previously offered. And I, I think that was kind of a new dimension, but I mean, considering his peak years, I mean, from 98 through yeah. 2004, he averaged 16 points, 10 assists, seven rebounds, two steals. Um, I mean, he was a more efficient shooter, I guess at this point, but he, I don't think he was nearly like the dynamic point guard that he was. I, I will, 
I will say in my notes, I, I made a note of saying Jason Kidd was by far the Mavs' best defensive option on Carmelo, which like kind of reminds you just like how good Kidd was at like everything other than just your classic points per game. Um, like he, I mean, he had just this one pass to Brandon Bass in this game that I thought was probably the best player of the entire game. Um, and then he played really stout D on Carmelo who had the athletic and the height advantage on him, obviously. Um, so definitely not a points per game guy, but even at this stage of his career, I thought in terms of just players that were helping these teams win games, I would have had him fourth behind Dirk Mello and Billups. I just, uh, I just looked up his, uh, fantasy ranking from that year and he was the seventh best fantasy player in the NBA on a total production basis and also the seventh best the next year which is really surprising I think the got, steals I mean two steals a game yeah yeah I mean the next year he was over nine assists that, that makes sense what did you what did you guys think of Mello overall I mean I think at the end of the day he's kind of the reason that we did this and to, to set the scene a little bit they they mentioned early in the telecast I think you got to go sound on next time, James. You're missing some nuggets here, but they okay, okay. They 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 mentioned that Chauncey Billups, uh, who of course you know they traded for, like we talked about, uh, he had he had talked to Mello and inspired him to ditch the cornrows because he wanted to become more of a, a professional, more of a man. Uh, so he he cut the cornrows prior to this season, and he had you know had one of the best years of his career. He had earlier in this season he had a 33 point quarter, which at the time was tied for a league record. I, I believe Clay Thompson now has that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. This is also coming off of his first USA basketball or first successful USA basketball tour. That was 08, the redeemed team when they, you know, got, got mellow, got LeBron, got Kobe, got Dwight and, and kind of reasserted themselves. So you could maybe make the claim that that had an effect on it as well, but this was not, a, not a great mellow game efficiency wise. Um, you know, it had a lot of misses at the rim. That was the theme for everybody. You know, Nene was O of seven in the first half. Almost all of his attempts came right at the rim. Uh, just poor finishing all around, but Melo had some big baskets in this game. He had some tough catches for, for finishes around the rim in the second half, hit some big shots in the second, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I, it just kind of seemed like a very mid two thousands mellow game. Like his, his game, much like most guys who, whose careers endured into the next decade, you know, it, it was, a, it was a much different mellow than we saw, you know, even during his better years with the Knicks. He didn't come off to me as like a hundred percent, the best player in this game. Um, on a stretch of the imagination, like Chauncey Bills was coming up clutch down the stretch, or especially in the second half, and Jason Kidd and Dirk also looked good. But I don't know; it's kind of hard, like to he. I mean, he shot 14 free throws, but so much of this game was just like plagued by free throws that I don't like. He was just getting hacked every time he went to the basket, and I don't know how much of that was him making amazing moves or if it was, you know, that defensive mentality of anybody who looks like they're going for a layup, we just don't let them do that. Um, so, I mean, he had 31 points on 24 shots. It was a good game, but he didn't he didn't stand out to me as, like, an absolute superstar, although nobody in this game really did. Well, he so he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't, really make his teammates better um he the things that stood out to me were just uh his strength uh, especially like part of the reason he's able to get to the line that much is because he's able to sort of bang with those big bodies down there and he's able to get rebounds uh without just like getting the ball ripped out of his hands or without getting his shot 
completely blocked. You know, he's able to, he's got the size and the strength to make them call the fouls down there. Uh, and then obviously some really pretty jumpers, some, uh, turnaround stuff in the mid range. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he really was very one dimensional to me offensively. It was a good dimension. Uh, you know, he certainly was able to score, uh, but, defensively i thought he actually tried harder in this game than i was expecting him to try um he i was there was a play where he dove on the floor to try to force a jump ball late in the game and got called for a foul on it and i i was sort of upset at the referee for calling the with or calling the foul because i wonder if it led to fewer uh loose ball attempts for carmelo uh, for, for the rest of his career but um yeah, I mean, it, I, I thought he was better than I expected defensively and, you know, a, a bit more one-dimensional than I sort of hoped he would be offensively. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I thought it was interesting that they didn't really specifically run things through him late in the game. Like, it was like he doesn't bring the ball up almost ever. You know, it's it's get the ball to the point guard, and that's usually Billups to bring it up. Where, like, you watch, you watch Melo on the Knicks in 2012 – He's the guy that, if, even if he's not getting the rebound, he's going to get the ball and he's bringing it up. It's not Raymond Belton. It's not J.R. Smith. Like, there were times late late in this game where, like, in today's NBA, if you have a superstar, even of Melo's caliber, that guy is getting the ball. He's not Maybe he's not shooting it every time, but he's at least getting a touch. And he's getting a chance to kind of choose how the possession goes. And, like, there are two out of the final three possessions for Denver. One of them is a Chauncey Billups drive that, that ends up clanking off the backboard. And one of them is a an isolation for Nene. You know, like you would, I just don't think you would ever see that these days. Like Melo just not touching the ball at all. He, and I don't know if it was like a decoy situation. I, I think he, like he did most of the game, is just kind of running around, going off screens. Maybe he would briefly post up out the elbow and then, and then kind of switch sides with, with the nay. But with, with like 45 seconds left in a game that I think at the time they were down four or down three, like you're not dumping it into Nene or a player like Nene in, in 2020. No, not Nene's at all. Nene's not going to be on the court, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think a tiny part of this, maybe even a bigger part than that, is the spacing aspect. Because you know, if you if you isolated it to Mello, there definitely wasn't going to be space in the lane for him to get a get to the rim or anything. So you're basically asking him to take a contested jumper uh, if you tried to isolate with anyone, and maybe they just weren't comfortable with that. But I mean the down, there were a couple plays in the second half, maybe the third quarter, where they did run stuff to get him the ball kind of on the block in a one-on-one. And those seemed to go very, very well. I'm not sure why they couldn't do more of that. But um, the spacing aspect probably prevented this sort of iso ball uh, that we've sort of come into with uh, the way the guys played today. Were you guys as alarmed as I was by the amount of spinning that Melo was doing? <laughs> every time and it worked i mean it worked but like he I, I don't think he he spins this much uh in portland these days like it was every single one was jab one way kind of tasmanian devil spin the other and i mean it like i said it was working he was getting to the rim and mostly getting fouled but um a little bit out of control for a kind of a go-to move yeah i mean the amount of energy that you had to exert in that era to try to get open near the rim like you he, he had to you have to jab step a ton to try to get the guy off balance then you have to spin uh like once or twice and then as soon as you get to the rim someone you know punches you in the chest uh i don't even know how like 
I it must have been it, insanely tiring. Fortunately, they all had eighty plus free throws to to take a rest during. Um, <laughs> right, that too. That's a good point. So one note I had was, um, I mean, I think I would go with Billups, but how, how um, similar do you guys think Chauncey Billups and Kyle Lowry's careers have been? In terms of the arc that they've taken, very similar. You know, um, slow start, bouncing around early on, not really hitting their true peak until their late 20s. And and even, I think you could argue for both of these guys, maybe even early 30s, certainly for Lowry. You know, I, I think his peak was last season, even if statistically um, you could say that it hit maybe closer to 2016 or 2017. I, I think really similar. I, I hate Chauncey Billups a lot less than I hate Kyle Lowry. That matters for something. Um, but I will say, I think, and I have this in my notes, I think I maybe underrated Chauncey Billups a little bit before watching this. And, you know, one one game out of a random series isn't the be-all, end-all, but I, I guess I didn't remember him being, you know, that guy that could really be the best player for your team against a, another really good opponent in a playoff game. Yeah, he is. Yeah. he was so good this year. Um, like, he was 17.9 points per game on only 12 and a half shots. He's in 40% from three and five attempts. He's getting to the free throw line six times, six assists with only two turnovers. Um, he was he was great. And I, I do really like that that Lowry comparison, James. You, you really had the ingredients here for uh, probably what could have been a really special core of players if, if you had just maybe one more guy, um, you know, with the mellow Billups. Kenyon Martin, J.R. Smith, like Dante Jones, if they just had like one more, uh, you know, high end starter, I think that that could have been a really devastating unit. They're just, there always seem to be at least one or two guys out there that just shouldn't have been out there. But, um, you know, Mil- Phillips, Carmelo this year, I mean, they might have been a piece away. Yeah. Like I said, both guys were, were third team all NBA and, I mean, third team is not is not first team, but still, I mean, it's tough to get two teammates on on a list of basically the top 15 players in the league for any season. I mean, what do you think the Nuggets were missing most? Like, what what would that piece be? Um, another shooter on the wing, like a yeah. like a yeah. better version of J.R. Smith, or um, like if they had Corver. Yeah, I mean, like ideally, you would have Kenyon Martin. I think at the five. This was probably too early in his career to, to talk Mello into playing the four, since the Knicks couldn't even talk him into doing that. Oh yeah, he, he would, I think he would more readily play the two than the four. Yeah, yeah, um, that that I, that's probably where it gets cut. So maybe maybe just a a good four that could shoot or something. I, I don't know, um, but it's I I forgot how impactful Billups was with the Nuggets, and that I think one of you guys said he finished like sixth in the MVP or something like that. Uh, I mean that. I definitely sort of forgot about this stage of Billups's career. I, I always associate him with the Pistons teams, and certainly that's where his mm. uh, the bulk of his prime years came. But um, he just he reminded me a lot of Lowry, uh, just with kind of making all of those classic veteran point guard winning playoff plays. Mm-hmm. So the Nuggets they had Marcus Camby for several years before this. He he started seventy nine games the previous season. Led the leagues, led the league in blocks per game for three straight years, including that year. Um, so they essentially end up swapping out AI and Camby for Billups and more minutes for Nene. 
which I, I think is their heart was in the right place. But I do agree. They're still one guy short. And if you look at their drafts, like they had no first round picks from 2006 to 2010, did not make a single first round pick in January of 09. They trade their first round pick plus Chucky Atkins for Johan Petro, who plays two minutes in this game. So obviously that first round pick wasn't going to help them this year, but it's just a series of kind of bizarre trades where they're just giving up first for virtually nothing. And you think if they make one pick between like 06, 07, 08, like maybe that's the guy who who ends up turning into like the eighth man that they need. They they let Marcus Camby go, but I guess they figured that they would still have enough like rim protection with Birdman there. Like they were second in the league in blocks still this year. So, but yeah, you would think, I don't know. I mean, this team seemingly had like the personnel to, I mean, yeah. they, they got all the way to the, the Western Conference Finals, so I guess I guess they did. But when Linus Kaliza plays the sixth most minutes on your team during the regular season, that's probably not a not a good sign. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe uh, maybe it's just as simple as saying if they could have convinced Melo to be a four, then yeah. that would have unlocked something because I think their best their best lineup to me would have been Dante Jones and Jr. and Chauncey Billups. And then Mello and uh, Kenyon Martin. I mean, to me, that's that's like a lineup that could win a playoff series in today's mm-hmm. NBA. Uh, but they were certainly not close to uh, starting Mello at the four. So maybe that's just unrealistic to think that that would have been a possibility. So I'm I'm fully on board with pinning the shortcomings on Mello. Uh, <laughs> but it is worth noting they they had Ronaldo Balkman on the roster. Ronaldo Balkman appears in 53 games for this team in the regular season. He starts 10 games and then just doesn't get off the bench. Hey, George Carl was known to hold a grudge. <laughs> I actually looked up the, like, I mean, he was, he was like the first shocking draft pick that I remember. I think that was what, 06. And I looked up the, like the values of, of how those guys ended up turning out. He was taken 20th and ended up being the 16th best player in that draft. So actually, in retrospect, kind of a great value pick by the Knicks. <laughs> great value pick for 221 career games. <laughs> yeah, I think he was out in New York before the end of his second NBA season, I believe. Uh, quick note on on the uniform. So Dallas's uniforms haven't really changed at all. But wh- where, what did you guys think of seeing these kind of vintage, mellow, uh, baby blue Nuggets unis? The more, I mean, I like the jerseys. The The most shocking thing... And something that's completely disappeared is the shininess. The like they're like silk, like like you yeah. could have slept in them. And they they yeah they look like they're just really high count sheets, you know, like that you would have <laughs> to spend a ton of money for at like Macy's or something. Like they, <laughs> they're um, the the material is just super early two thousands. Yes, uh, I definitely don't mind the the color scheme or the logo. Like, I, I don't think that they've made a improvement on that since then, really. Uh, I, I think the Mavs uniforms are terrible then, and they're still pretty bad. Um, yep. Yeah. They're, the Mavs are in, in dire need of a, of an update. And they, I guess they've kind of done it with some of their alternates, but yeah, those, those sets were bad back then and they're, they're still pretty bad. I think we should probably get to the end of the game. Huh? We haven't really talked about, that final like minute and then especially that the final, I guess like six seconds, you know, with what ends up being a pretty controversial play. Well, we should, we should probably start with the Jason Terry three. That, yes. Um, was just kind of classic, classic big game, Jason Terry. 
Yep, and that was classic uh, Anthony Carter just completely leaving him wide open in the corner. Granted, it was to go double Dirk, so I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. In Why vacuum, was Anthony Carter in the game? <laughs> he checked. He this checked in under a minute left. <laughs> okay, so we'll start. We'll start it with a, with a minute left in the game. It's 102.99 Dallas. Dirk misses a jumper, uh, and then Nene comes down and makes a really nice move. I, I don't know if you guys remember this specific play, but yeah. he kind of goes. He kind of goes like up and under the rim and then just lays it up like a ridiculously athletic play for what we know as current day Nene. Nene with a size advantage on Bass tries to spin around him. What a move by the big man. How many guys his size can make that move? So it's 102-101 in favor of the Mavs. Dallas calls a timeout. In comes Anthony Carter for J.R. Smith. Immediately ditches his man and leaves Jason Terry wide open. Pretty nice pass from Dirk on a drive. Terry hits a corner three. It's 105-101 with 31 seconds left. Denver calls a timeout. Levinsky driving on to Martin. Wide open is Jason Terry. So JR comes back in. Offense, defense with Anthony Carter. And I, I think it was a really underratedly smart play. They inbounded to Mello, you know, from the sideline after the timeout. He wastes no time. He has Josh Howard on him, just immediately drives to the rim for a dunk. So they only end up burning, I think, fewer than three seconds. So there's 28 and a half left after that. And all of a sudden, it's 105-103 Dallas. Uh, and then Dirk, you know, kind of brings the clock all the way down to like eight or nine seconds. Ends up missing a, a, a fairly good look, but uh, contested nonetheless, uh, about a 12-foot jumper. Um, so it's 7.9 seconds left. Uh, excuse me, 6.7 seconds left. The Nuggets are down to... 105-103, which sets up, of course, Farcamello Anthony. Kenyon and Martin, new inbound. J.R. Smith back into the game for the Nuggets. Carmelo defended by Antoine Wright. And there's the foul. They didn't call it, and Carmelo hits it! Carmelo hits it! He hit a three! Wow, and it looks like Antoine is pleading his case. He wanted the foul call. He was definitely trying to foul. Rick Carlisle just said he fouled him. He fouled him before Carmelo tried to get the shot off. It was not called. Carmelo did not stop playing. He kept playing and hit an off-balance three. One one reason why I, I hate replay, and I'm I wish that we never added it is that I still don't think that the right outcome of this game would have happened even if they had replay because I, I just don't think that they would have overturned that and said I mean well, and they overturned it? yeah yeah I mean that that's the other thing is I don't even know if they could have but I don't think um, they, if there's no foul called I don't think you can yeah so it's just it's just a blatant miss by the official and part of the reason why I think it was a blatant miss by the official is that right fouls him and then immediately puts his hands up and like to say like I didn't touch him like I didn't do anything. Yep. Um, instead of just selling the foul, you know, like foul him and just keep fouling him until you hear the whistle because they, he had time to just basically just push him out of bounds at that point. Uh, but he like slaps him and then puts his hands up and basically just lets Mello get up a wide open look without ever hearing the the whistle. So I I don't I don't really feel bad for Antoine Wright there. I. I feel bad for the Mavs, I guess, but, um, you know, maybe that shouldn't have been the guy you had in there. Like whoever you got to rely on to make the right call there. I mean, he just didn't seem like he executed it the right way. Yeah. And like with what you're saying, James, you have to, in that situation, you have to like really wrap them up 
or like really, really make sure you follow them because I know the refs catch a lot of flack, but in the last minute of NBA games, you have no idea whether the refs are going to be jumpy with the whistle or whether they're going to swallow it completely and not call anything. And so I know like sometimes we're watching a late game situation. Someone will like basically touch someone with a finger and they'll blow the whistle. And then other times someone will basically get hacked and no foul is called ever. Um, And I think the ref just kind of swallowed the whistle here, which shouldn't completely be unexpected. And then Melo does the right thing. He just pulls up, you know, after he gets past the guy and feels contact and, um, it was just kind of like a very, um, yeah, kind of typical yeah. like NBA ref situation. <laughs> I mean, the one thing Wright couldn't do is the one thing he did do, where he did a really weak foul and then just stopped competing on the play. You know, like either either do a really hard foul, uh, do a weak foul and like keep guarding him. I don't know, or just don't foul and guard him. I mean, I, I think. Any other scenario, at, at the very least, Mello shooting a uh, highly contested three because he he can't get like a screen or any kind of uh, separation there. His only separation is because Wright stops guarding him. So it's just you know worst case scenario for the man. So then you have the post game. Uh, this is we we should actually mention that um, there's still a second left on the <laughs> clock. So after all this, there's like a. They're reviewing something. It's not clear what they're reviewing. I, I think I think it ends up being like whether it was a three, and it was very clearly a three. So, like the crowd is just confused. The players are extremely upset. Everybody's shouting. Everybody has to be held back, and then they have to regroup. And Dallas still has a chance to to come back and get a bucket. And I think they have like one point one second left. They get it into Dirk, who gets off what looks like a pretty good look. It's online. It ends up it ends up being an air ball. Um, but as soon as the buzzer sounds, uh, then you have Josh Howard. You know, immediately going at the referees slash Nuggets players. Kenyon Martin gets into it with Josh Howard. Um, most of this isn't on the telecast, but afterward, Mark Cuban apparently got into it with Kenyon Martin's mother, uh, which led to him having to pu- publish an apology on his blog, uh, blogmaverick.com, which is a very 2009 website name. He titled it An Apology to Kenyon Martin's Mother. Um, and apparently he was, he was he's been accused of calling Martin either a thug or a punk, depending on the account. Uh, I mean, Mark, classic Mark Cuban kind of getting in the middle of some situation that he later has to apologize for and then everyone kind of forgives him for. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just I, I, I think that's also like in, uh, uh, I don't know if indicative of the era is the right term, but very era appropriate response by like all sides. Yes, very much so. And there's, I, I'm not going to put the audio in here or, or link it or anything, but if you want to look it up on your own time, there's a very clear video of uh, Mr. Martin uh, directing a homophobic slur uh, Mark Cuban's <laughs> way after the game, which I, I don't even think he was punished for. I don't, I don't know if it ever really truly came to light until later on. So after this, the Nuggets are up 3-0. They, they play game four on Monday. And I went back and found an article from the Denver Post uh, that said, quote, Monday night's game four in Dallas proved no less incendiary. Someone poured beer on Kenyon Martin's mother and Martin's girlfriend was subjected to repeated obscenities. Lala Vasquez, Carmelo Anthony's wife, ends up shouting back at the Mavericks fans and was so upset she had to leave the game in the fourth quarter. Martin had to find his mother in the crowd during the second quarter to check up on her. And even Nuggets coach Jamal Mosley left his spot on the bench to check on her. Yikes. (laughs) That's, uh... I mean, that's you'd think stadium security would 
I mean, if they're taking their cues from Mark Cuban, maybe they were <laughs> fine with it. But <laughs> I mean, that's like oh, if that happened. Uh, I mean, if any, really, if anything that we're talking about happened uh, after a mm-hmm. playoff game today, like each one of those individual things would have been enough for ESPN to get their morning programming. I mean, a, a team owner walking up to the mother of an opponent and saying, your son is a punk. <laughs> yeah, or or <laughs> Kenny Martin uh, calling him a homophobic slur. I mean, the, the beer getting spilled on family members. I mean, like, all that stuff would just be enough to carry a news cycle to them. Who, outside of Mark Cuban, who would be <clears throat> most likely to be involved in a, in a situation like this? Is it already Toman Fertitta? <laughs> <laughs> As an owner? Yeah, right. Owners only. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe it's only Cuban. I don't know. Well, most, I mean, most guys aren't. Most owners aren't sitting courtside. I mean, that one. That one, like minority owner. Uh, what? Who did they push Westbrook last year? Or, or, um, I can't. I can't even remember. Oh, like Golden State. I didn't. I thought was that a minority owner? Oh it's yeah, not, that that's just somebody. Like some player landed like next to this minority owner and then he like pushed him or something, but like nobody yeah. knew that he was actually an owner till like after the game, everyone just thought he was like a fan. <clears throat> right. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, Ballmer, Ballmer, Steve Ballmer basically sits in the Mark Cuban seats, but he also, it, it's just like so wrapped up in like being an insane person in his own head that I don't, I don't like really associate Steve Ballmer with like ever going to get in a like a altercation no. with a player he's, or he's someone too, in the he's arena. He's way too like uh, you know he's way too successful for that to be something he would ever consider just because the downside is. But it's like for for someone who's just basically a fan and happens to own the team, yeah. like um, I mean, like I couldn't picture James Dolan having the balls to do anything like this, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much Cuban and then, you know, whoever. And there's just dozens and dozens of guys that are technically owners that maybe they could do it. But um, Tillman Fertitta also sort of seems in that James Dolan camp of, like, you're really dumb and you're really bad at being an owner, but you're not, like, so brazen that you're going to say anything negative to an opposing player. Yeah, I think that's all spot on. I think Ballmer has too much positive energy to ever do something like right. that. Like I could see him getting in someone's face and just like, just shouting, but I don't think he would ever call anyone a thug or a slur or anything like that. All right. It's time to, to empty out the notes. Do you have anything else that we didn't hit on? Uh, Dante Jones poster dunk. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, I feel like it was like six minutes, 15 seconds, of the first quarter, absolute insane dunk. And I feel like I've watched almost every good dunk in the history of NBA. That's on any sort of YouTube montage. And I, this is maybe the first time I've seen that one. Now Nene, who has scored 49 points in the first two games of this series. Off to Dante Jones, who finishes right in the grill of Eric Dampier. Wow. That was a great dunk. Uh, Dante Jones was on sort of my list of guys who I felt were, might have been even better fits today than they were back then. Um, he only shot 33% from three for his career, but had he basically never took more than 1.2 per game during his prime. And he had some years in there where he was shooting over 40%. So I feel like 
he could have been an actual three and D guy who could guard one through three and shoot threes at a pretty good clip, but just was never asked to take enough threes to be that valuable. Hey, he's got a ring. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching some 2016 Cavs highlights yesterday, and he, somewhere in that Warriors final series, he has like a, a really nice and one finish. It's one of the games in Cleveland that completely forgot that he was even on that team. He appeared in one regular season game for the Cavs and somehow weaseled his way out of the court in the finals. I have uh, two future head coaches on the Mavericks bench, both Terry Stotts and Dwayne Casey, who you can only see very briefly when they're at some point, they're trying to restrain Rick Carlisle late in the game. And that's really the only cameo that they make. But uh, Wait, yeah. was, was, was Stotts on the Mavs bench? I thought so. Is he, or is well, he on the I, I mean, he, he was a long-term or a long-time George Carl assistant. Uh, oh, maybe I have that backwards short, in my notes. Short, short story. I actually, uh, you know how at the, at the Cole Center, they, they always have the state basketball tournament. Um, back when George Carl was a Bucks coach, sure. I was at that uh, high school basketball tournament, um, and I got, a, I got my program, like my 200-page book that you could buy, um, and I got that signed by George Carl and Terry Stotts. They were Damn. sitting like in the kind of shitty seats uh, up by where I was sitting, and I just walked over. I, I knew who George Carl was, and George Carl wouldn't look my way, but Terry Stotts was sitting next to him, and Terry Stotts said hey and took my book and got him and George to sign it, and I gave it back to me, and I had no idea who Terry Stotts was at the time. <laughs> um, where do you still have that book? I could probably dig it up at my parents' house somewhere. All right, yeah, please do. So <laughs> Stotts was in fact with the Mavs at the time, but prior to that, he had been under Carl with the Bucks. Okay, that's that's interesting that yep. Stotts was uh, and the that's yeah, that's a pretty loaded Mavs bench. There were also a couple shots of Jerry Stackhouse on the bench. I, I don't know yep. if he was in. Was he hurt? This year, he only played in 10 games. I mean, it was pretty late in his career. He very well just could have been inactive for like the final five months of the season. But this was this was one year before he he ended up moonlighting for the Bucks and singing the <laughs> national anthem and averaging more than 20 minutes per game somehow. Oh my God! Yeah, that uh, that stint with the Bucks was out of out of nowhere. That wasn't going. That was a prime, uh, prime Bucks era that he yeah. was in there for. Well, his his okay. final five seasons are out of nowhere. I mean, if we assume, if we assume, uh, like Jerry Stackhouse seems like he's trending towards being an NBA head coach someday, right? Like, yes, I feel I, like I, that's what well, seemed like two or three years ago he was, and I, you, now I haven't heard his name in any of these openings really since then. Like, wasn't he supposed to get the Raptors job or supposed to get the Nets job? Yeah, uh, I don't remember the exact jobs. I just I remember thinking he was sort of on that track, but right. Um, yeah, I mean, there there were a lot of it's funny just watching a game from 10 years ago, you see so many players who are now off to just random other things in their career, but they're still heavily involved with the NBA. How do you remember Jerry Stackhouse? Like what team? He's, he's had several different lives in the NBA. Uh, I think I mostly remember him on the Mavericks. I think I mostly remember him on the Pistons. Yeah, same here. But even like, I don't know. I definitely had like basketball cards of him on the Sixers, which was, you know, going all the way back to the mid 90s. And I mean, he was a 20 point per game guy for the Wizards for a couple of years. 
Very strange career. Yeah, I mean, he scored basically 30 a game in, in 2000. Um, he was on that first Heat five team. Five assists. Yeah, he was. Yeah, Final was five good. years of his career, he goes Dallas, Milwaukee, Miami, Atlanta, Brooklyn. Oh, my God. Yeesh. All right, anything else that we missed? Not got my No, I, I'm wiped out as well. Um, well, this is fun. What, what game do you guys want to do next? That's the real question. I don't know. I mean, we, we kind of went with the... I feel like we got to do one way more recent or way earlier because yeah. we kind of hit that mid-range or we kind of hit like that mid-2000s. So I think we got to go one direction either way. Let's let's do the let's do the 2006 game between the Suns and the Lakers. Uh, is three years earlier? Is that or is that far enough apart from this one? I think so. And at least it's the Suns, so they'll be playing. You know, they'll be playing a, a very good uh, like unique style well that that's a great uh that's a great one because it's it's absolutely super prime kobe uh with like the really fun suns unit and smush parker on that lakers team so that that's always uh entertaining to watch how kobe treats smush parker on the court there's some serious names for both of these teams too i mean raja bell is suspended for the game that I'm currently looking at, like Tim Thomas is playing 35 plus minutes. Oh, Tim Thomas had a series that, that he had a hell of a series in that. that yeah. Matchup. Game six is the, the most iconic one. That's the overtime Suns win, but Kobe goes for 50. Sure. Yeah. All right. I like that. As, as long as we can find a video that's slightly better quality, I'm in. <laughs>